Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Uh, I'm Barry. I'm an alcoholic and addict. Hey, Barry. Hey, y'all. Grateful to be here. Grateful to be sober. Uh... And thank you, Eric, for inviting me to do this tonight, even though I'm working on not getting a resentment because my name wasn't on the website. (laughs) When I looked up the address of the church, I saw all the speakers up until August 31st, and today's September 7th, and I'm not up in lights. But I love you, Eric. I love you, Eric. It's okay. It's okay. I'll forgive you. And I'm not the 15-minute speaker, which is what I hoped I would be when Eric asked me to speak tonight. So, and I, I also like to like speakers to end on time. So I'll, don't worry about that. All y'all will have a date after the meeting, <laughs> as long as it's not with the dope man. Uh, AA is my my fellowship of choice. Alcohol is not my drug of choice, and with no disrespect to AA. Other substances will be mentioned this evening. And if that offends anybody, I apologize in advance, but that's really too bad because I'm the speaker, so you can leave. (laughs) I've told my story several times over the last few months, and I'm really glad there's this nice, solid podium here. I told my story uh, about six months ago at a retreat in Mississippi, Calling it a retreat center would be a major compliment. It was more like a trailer park. (laughs) But it was Mississippi. And, but there was this podium, and I I tend to lean, and you know, I'm not a little boy. As I was just about finishing, I almost ended up on your lap, because the whole podium crashed. Then the last time I spoke, I was at another conference. I do a lot of conferences even though I'm very proud to be just here as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's what's given me my life today, and I am so grateful. Uh, anyway, I was at this conference, and there was no podium. Well, there was a podium. The podium was on the stage, and but the first speaker spoke from the floor with just a mic, and I decided I would look grandiose and narcissistic and arrogant if I went up the stage to the podium after the first guy was on the floor. And speaking without a podium, I just got incredibly miserable, anxious, and nervous. That also might have been because I had been at that conference about 10 years before loaded, so that might have had something to do with it. But anyway, I'm glad there's a podium here, a good solid podium, and thank you all for being here. Thank you for asking me to do this. Uh, My sobriety date is September the 16th, 2007, so if I make it another eight days, I'll have six years sober a week from Monday, and for that, I am extremely grateful. My original sobriety date, November 25th, 1989, Uh, came into this program, uh, dragged in by my short and curlies, not because I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but because somebody thought I had a problem, and... uh, my professional, my profession and my livelihood were threatened and I ended up in a treatment program. But let me not get ahead of myself. Let me go back. January 24th, 1950, 63 and a half years ago, I was born. I was born in the city of Newark, New Jersey, 
for those of you who are Southerners and have no idea what that means. Uh, Newark is a microcosm of New York, if you will. It's in the shadows of New York. Uh, it's a city in the 60s, uh, like many of the, and well, I was born in the 50s, but by the 60s it was a city that was burning in parts. But when I was born in Newark in 1950, I was born as the second son. I always say that, and it's really significant. I was really just the younger son, but I was the second son. It's amazing how that always happens. Anyway, I was a younger son of a, of a middle-class Jewish family. Uh, my mother was a retired registered nurse, retired when she got married and became the perfect Jewish mother, housewife. You could eat off the floors. I don't know why you'd want to, but you could. Uh... And my father was a Russian-born immigrant to the United States, uh, had a GED equivalency, they didn't call it that then, uh, and was a very successful self-made businessman, uh, left me and my brother and sister more than I'll ever leave my children because I tend to spend it, uh, but he was a very successful man. He was also a very tough guy. Uh, and uh, that toughness um, had a big impact on my life. Listening to Kelly uh, earlier, uh, her childhood down here in Columbus wasn't that different from mine. I was also lonely. You know, therapists asked me once, give me one word to talk to or describe your childhood, and lonely was the word that came. And again, I was I was in a middle-class home in a in a small apartment that my father owned the building. Uh, he owned a lot of buildings. Uh, and uh, there were people everywhere. I shared a bedroom with my brother. But I was lonely. Just like I learned how to be, you know, throughout my whole life and a whole group of people this big, I can be all alone and lonely if my disease is winning. So, yeah, I believe I was an alcoholic and an addict long before I did alcohol and drugs. Uh that's just my personal belief about me and my disease. Um, but uh, several significant things happened to me in my childhood. Uh, again, I was this lonely second child. My older brother, who's uh, two years and ten months older than I, was the genius. He was also the firstborn son, and he's the one that got... My father didn't have a whole lot of love to give. I mean, he had a whole lot of financial support and a whole lot of structure and discipline. And now, today, after a million dollars worth of therapy, I know that was love. I just didn't know it then. And the little bit he had, my brother received. Uh, and my brother was his son, which made me my mother's son, which wasn't all bad. I know my mother was a, a homemaker, uh, a gentle person. Not particularly demonstrative as far as hugs and kisses and I love you. And such a young crowd. But Ozzy and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver and those shows were what I thought my house was supposed to be like. And it wasn't. Now, I know today nobody's was. But I didn't know that then. I didn't know that then. So I, I lived in the shadow of my brother, the genius, and we went to the same elementary school, same high school. And had a lot of the same teachers. Oh, you're Arthur Lubin's brother. Are you as smart as he is? Every year. Every September. That's what I heard. <laughs> and the truth is, I was a very good student. I don't think I'm as 
naturally smart as my brother, and things came extremely easily to him. But I did perform. I felt like I had to. Um, and again, my father, being an Eastern European Jewish immigrant, uh, education, education, education. My father used to say, you guys go to school so you don't have to be a schlepper. Anybody in the church understand schlep? Buggy lugger, carry big shit. Uh, you know, go to school, get a profession, and, and that's what I'm going to give you. And he did. Uh, of course, the other thing he carried that his dream, uh, was to be a, his sign of success was to have a son, the doctor. Um, and of course that all focused on my brother. But my brother majored in math and went off to college and became a PhD in math, which tells you a whole lot about him. He's, you know, not much like me, to say the least. Um, <laughs> But he's my brother and I love him. See, that was part of the million dollars worth of therapy. I got there. Uh, I got there. Um, and when he did that, I was, uh, he went to college I, when he was 17, I was 14. And again, I was a good student. And he finally made the statement, I'm not going to be a doctor. So that determined my course of future education. I became a pre-med student when I went to college. I went to medical school. I became a physician because then I'll be happy. Because then my father will love me. And then I'll be okay. Boom, boom, boom. Anybody can relate to that? I think I saw a few heads going. Um, another significant event in my early childhood. I was six years old, 1956. Mickey Mantle won the Triple Crown. Again, this is a young audience. Mickey Mantle, he played baseball for the New York Yankees. Okay. Mickey Mantle won the Triple Crown in 1956. I have this very strong memory of the newspaper, the Newark Evening News, the front page of the sports section. There's Mickey Mantle holding the trophy of the Triple Crown, big trophy. And I looked at that picture and I knew I wanted to be the trophy. I just wanted to be held like that, and I knew that, and I didn't know what that meant, and I didn't know, I knew it meant I shouldn't talk about this, so that was one of my secrets for my life, my whole life. Another major event of childhood, 10 years old, Passover Seder, again, no disrespect to the church, but I am a Jewish boy, uh, and because of us, we're, you're here. Uh, <laughs> Passover Seder. Yeah, the Seder is, is, uh, revolves around a lot of ritual, the telling of the Passover story. Some of you saw the movie with Charlton Heston. I wasn't him. Um, but um, it involves four cups of wine. Children at the Passover Seder are given grape juice. Well, ten years old, I decided, I want to see what the real stuff does. So I managed, you know, I had aunts and uncles and cousins all around this big table in my mother's home, because uh, she was in charge of that. Um, and I managed to drink, I don't know how many glasses of wine. And again, much like Kelly, I remember the room, the floor, the spinning, the 
flush the warmth, the wonderfulness of that drink, of that drunk. I remember that, and I remember it to this day, 54 years later, almost 54 years later. Uh, the other thing that happened that night at the Passover Seder, my favorite first cousin, I was 10, so she was 19, uh, was 19, was going to nursing school uh, in our community, and I propositioned her. I mean, the weird, it's not weird that I wanted to be sexual, it was weird that it was a girl, but <laughs> alcohol, that's a strange thing. But... And, of course, that became the family joke for many Passovers to come. Uh, and it was one of my shame things. So, you know, so be it. Every time I tell that story, when I tell my story, it feels a little better. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. Uh, needless to say, I didn't have sex that night. At any rate, I was 16 years, I was 14, my brother left the house and went to college, and when he left, the loneliness got much worse. Because at least before, there was somebody else. My father was an angry man. My father, uh, and I was afraid of his anger, and I've been afraid of angry men for much of my life, and again, the therapy's helped, but I still don't particularly like you if you're an angry man. Go away, please, stay away. Um... But uh, when my brother left home, my loneliness got worse, my emptiness got worse, my fear got worse, and I did not know how to fix it except figuring out, well, I'm smart enough to get out of high school without graduating and go to college and do this doctor thing, and uh, I'll do that. I was also struggling with my uh, sexuality as, as a young teenager, and I thought, well, if I go to a boys' dormitory at a college, that might help solve this mystery for me. <laughs> it didn't hurt, let me tell you. <laughs> it was the 60s. Uh, beer was around very, very freely being drunk uh, on college campuses. So was pot being smoked. Uh, I didn't do a lot of chemicals. Um, I was 16, I was underage, I hated the taste of beer, I used to sit my father's once in a while. My father had a strange relationship with alcohol, I don't think he was an alcoholic, uh, but he had that bottle of scotch on the top of the pantry, and he worked on a, as a warehouse manager, he worked on an outdoor platform. So in the winter when he came home for lunch and came home for dinner, first up was the top shelf. And he would take a swig out of the bottle and put it back in that was to get warm. And in the summer, it was to get cool. <laughs> and I knew the scotch was there, but I never drank it. Uh, it just didn't seem attractive. Uh, my father, uh, personality never changed when he drank. Uh, I had, my mother had, was one of four sisters and one brother. Uh, my brother died, her brother, my uncle, I was a physician who died an alcoholic death. Uh, and at family functions, uh, you know, and for all of you in the room who aren't Jewish, like 99% of you, we Jewish people do not drink, except sometimes. Uh, and at family functions, my father and my uncle would sit in the corner with a bottle of scotch and drink. My uncle would get ugly drunk, and my father would just... <laughs> 
drink, never change, and then go over to a corner of a back room, sleep for about an hour, and wake up and was fine. So again, I don't know that he was an alcoholic, I don't know that he wasn't. Uh, his first cousins have told me stories about his womanizing and sexual behaviors when he was in between marriages, and I think his disease may have come out in that arena. Uh, but, and I don't know how much drinking he did in those days. But towards the end of his life, and now I'm jumping again, towards the end of his life, when he figured out I was in bad trouble with addiction, and he confronted me, and of course I said it was a crazy old fool who was just angry and sick and he was dying and had cancer and he didn't know what he was talking about. None of the first part was true, but he knew what he was talking about. But he said to me, he said, all you need is willpower. That's the way he lived his life. That's the way he lived his life. And he was successful at it, i.e., he was on his own from the time he was 14 years old and made his way to a whole new world and had two families and a huge amount of financial success through willpower. He was somewhat miserable, in my opinion. But anyway, so I went to college at 16. Uh, didn't do a lot of chemicals. Did experiment in the sexual arena. Uh, I think my disease came out there. Uh, but was always very conscious of having to get good grades so I'd go to medical school. Because if I couldn't go to medical school, then I couldn't be happy because I couldn't be a doctor because then my father wouldn't love me anymore. Well, maybe never did, but he wouldn't, you know. Anyway, you get it. Uh, well, I did go to medical school. I did graduate from college uh, at the age of 20. Went to medical school in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and in the city of Philadelphia, I had my first blackout. That's why I have no problem identifying as an alcoholic. I had an alcoholic blackout. I mean, and that too, I remember like yesterday. First semester, medical school. We had a party at the end of the first six weeks after we had a test, and I remember drinking. It was, well, there were two things. There was, uh, what's the alcohol you put in the garbage can with the, you know? Huh? Ever clear. Clear, right, clear. It was clear in a Hawaiian punch in the garbage can. Right? Ever clear. Grain alcohol. That's it. Grain alcohol. And, and I also drank for the first time Southern Comfort. God, that was a disgusting drink. But I do remember drinking to blacking out. I do remember wake. I lived in a converted row house in the city of Philadelphia, uh, where there were six apartments on the of the on the old three three story house, and we were in the fifth one on the way up. And I woke up horizontal on the staircase. Uh, had no idea how I got there. So yeah, I do remember a, a blackout. So I did experience, uh, you know, experiment with alcohol. Still did not do a lot of drugs. Did smoke a little pot. One of the other things I, that happened in uh, high school age, which I neglected to mention, is I read a biography of Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud was addicted to cocaine. And the, the book said he was addicted to cocaine to the point that he had a hole in his nasal septum. And I read that and I thought, oh, isn't that cool? <laughs> so I really, uh, the white powder was my drug of choice long before I ever saw it. And I was just waiting until I could have access to it. 
and have money to buy it, and then I knew I'd be okay. But before that happened, while I was in medical school, uh, you know, continuing to act out, well, to act in my gay in my gay behaviors, uh, continuing to work on how does a nice Jewish boy in medical school in 1971 be a faggot, because gay wasn't even a word. Um, so I figured when I met the woman who then became my wife for the next 20 years, uh, you deal with this by getting married, and that'll fix it, which I did, but it didn't. But I did get married, uh, have three wonderful children as a result of that marriage, three wonderful grandchildren as a result of some of their marriages, uh, <laughs> and I'm very grateful for that part of my life. I don't believe I would have lived through my disease had I not been a father. Uh, I really believe that. And, you know, I'll brag. Last night, just last night, I had dinner at my son's house in Dunwoody with his wife and two, his two daughters. And my daughter and son-in-law, who live up in Ringo, came down with their daughter. And even my ex-wife and her husband were there. And everybody did fine, except my youngest granddaughter vomited all over me. But, you know, that was okay, too. So, you know, and that's a direct result of this program, this fellowship, and these rooms. Um, at any rate, got married in 1971, uh, finished medical school, did my internship at the University of Miami, uh, and part of the reason I went to Miami was my parents had retired to Florida, and again, I was always wanting to be close enough to my father so that I could become number one son. Uh, and he was in Florida, so I took my wife, uh, to Florida, and she was pregnant when we moved, because uh, sex is sort of like ice cream, orgasms are sort of like ice cream, some are better than others, but I never had a bad one, uh, so although I was married to a woman and was a gay man, uh, I was had a very active life with my now ex-wife as well, in case you're wondering how that happened, uh, it did, the natural way, anyway, um, Moved to Florida, finished my residency, uh, again, in those three years, 1974 to 1977, before 90% of this room was born, uh, I did very few drugs, very little alcohol, uh, continued to act out in my sexual, the sexual part of my disease, not at home with my wife, uh, but out, out in, in a lot of shame-based, quickie places, and uh, that's for another meeting. Uh, went into practice in 1977 in a suburb of Fort Lauderdale, and I was finally then had the missing piece, as much money as I wanted. So that took away the thing that kept me away from the cocaine. And again, it was South Florida in the 1970s. All you needed was money in South Florida in the 1970s, and you had as much drugs as you wanted. And I did. Uh, I met my first line of cocaine at my accountant's house. Uh, from that first line, I knew. I knew I was home. The world, the music, the colors, it was all wonderful. And it became even more wonderful three years later when I learned how to cook it and smoke it. And I went down that road until 1989, November, when I got this phone call from the uh, network in the state of Florida that heard there was this drug-abusing doctor running around. And they thought maybe if I wanted to keep my license, I needed to go for an evaluation see if I'm an addict. 
I wasn't an addict. I just occasionally used freebase cocaine and drank too much once in a while. I wasn't an addict. Somehow I couldn't sell that story to the doctors. Uh, and that's when I moved here to Atlanta. I uh, spent 11 months completing the three-month program down at Talbot because I was so good. They kept me that long. Uh, and then they had nothing to do. No, they didn't know what to do with me, so they had to hire me. And I went to work and started uh, a new part of my career in addiction medicine, uh, for which I'm very grateful. And that is what I do today. Uh, however, the story would be short, over too soon, and boring if I lived happily ever after, and if I was almost 24 years sober, and again, my sobriety date, I'll be six years sober next week. I stayed clean and miserable for the next nine and a half years. Um, life got better. I didn't. Um, professionally, I was extremely successful. I worked with, uh, with Doug Talbot, some of you may know the name. He's one of the legends in addiction medicine. He's responsible for the recovery and sobriety of thousands of people all over this country and world. Uh, I worked with him. I traveled with him. I was his buddy. Come on, big guy. We're going on the road. And we went. Um, and I learned a lot. I didn't learn anything about AA. Um, and from the time I... While I was in treatment at Talbot... While I was in treatment, I used to go to meetings. But I never read the literature. I had seen the movie, My Name is Bill W., so I didn't really need to read this book. <laughs> and, you know, I learned how to talk to talk because I was surrounded by brilliant talkers who, at least to my appreciation of it, were also walking it. I, you know, these were my teachers, these were my doctors, these were my therapists that I then became peers with, and they were my friends, and they didn't go to meetings either, so why should I? And I didn't. And I didn't. And I'm not blaming anybody. I just didn't. I really had this belief that meetings were for the folks who couldn't afford treatment, who didn't have an education, who didn't have <laughs> degrees, and somehow my disease and my intellect and my diplomas made me someone better than, different than, and I didn't need that, you poor bastards. Um, you know, my best friend at the time was a recovering therapist, so she was like my sponsor. I kept meditation books on my desk. I never read them. Uh, I could, again, talk to talk well enough to convince a patient that, you know, I was in recovery when he was ready to leave against medical advice. I think one of the biggest things that helped keep me clean those years was I was in a position that I was the first line when somebody went home and relapsed. I was the one they called. And hearing those stories helped keep me green uh, and helped keep me scared, scared enough to not pick up again. But I truly practiced the principles of my disease. Uh, I had no problem lying, cheating, and stealing anywhere that I could. I just didn't use, and I didn't use for nine and a half years. Uh, financially, things were great. Professionally, things were great. Kids, things were great. But the hole in my heart it was huge. I tried to fill it with food. I peaked up at almost 400 pounds. Uh, God bless food. I hate this. Anyway. Um, 
I peaked in my sexual addiction. My behaviors got more and more and more out of control. Um, and I was living on Talbot property at the time down on the south side, acting out in their property with uh, not just guys I had a date with, if you can figure out between the lines. Um, and um, left Talbot when they were bought by charter in 1997, left them at their request, um, and stayed clean for another 18 months. I hooked back into the to the gay clubhouse downtown Galano, and and the fellowship there helped me stay clean. Uh, again, I didn't have a program, I didn't have a sponsor, I didn't have a god of my understanding, or my misunderstanding either. I just didn't have any of it, and I didn't think I needed it. And I was clean, and I had money, and I lived in a midtown high-rise, and I drove a nice car, and that's really all that mattered. Um, but again, I was dying, my soul was dying, and, and uh, in March of 1999, uh, went to a gay bar and had a drink. Picked up a guy and said, do you know how we can get some cocaine? And at that point, crack had hit the streets. And uh, I smoked crack and drank after nine and a half years of being clean. And when I made those decisions, well, I didn't make those decisions. When my disease made those decisions for me, my denial was strong enough that I truly believed that if this did not work out, I'll just go back. You know, I was a one white chip guy in 1989, so in 1999 I'll be a one white chip guy again. Right? Wrong. Um, things were good that first night. And I held on white knuckled for about the next ten days. It was a long ten days. When I was off to the races. And the next six months, from March of 99 to September of 1999, I lived in all the worlds. I lived in the, in the street world smoking dope, and I was still going to meetings, not picking up white chips because I didn't believe what y'all were doing anyway. And I was going to meetings just to be with my friends. Um, finally, in September, on September 7, 1999, went to a meeting after having been up for three days, went to a noon meeting at Galano. I can still see myself and feel myself and feel that horrible, horrible, incomprehensible demoralization that I felt. And the schmuck who was leading the meeting gave me the promises to read. And they read it in the beginning, and by the time that, you know, how it works, the traditions and the promises, and there I was with this damn beautiful literature in my hand. And the lie was gone. And I couldn't, you know, I cried through the whole thing, and then opened the meeting with the fact that I'd been using it for six months, and uh, didn't know what to do. Um, well, I went back to treatment. This time I went to the treatment, I went to the foreign country of Mississippi for treatment. Spent a year in a place called Copac. Met a man who's sitting over there. God has such a sense of humor. Uh, met a man who's still in my life is sitting over there. Um, and, uh, again, yeah, it took me a year to do their three month program. Um, and I didn't stay clean for much of any of it. After the first three months, they wanted me to stay for stay for more. Atlanta's not good for you. And I said, that's the same thing they told me when Florida wasn't good for me. I've got to go home to Atlanta. You don't understand. I was home for three days before I was on Boulevard. Uh, went back to Mississippi that January and spent the rest of uh, 
2000 in Mississippi. Stayed clean like until May because if you live in Jackson, Mississippi, you do dope too. Um, <laughs> my recovery job was at a supermarket and the checker in the next aisle was a young black man who happened to be a crack dealer. I mean, if God didn't want me to do dope, why would he have put him there? <laughs> um, and maybe when I get back to Atlanta, then I'll get clean. I mean, the lies, the power of this disease and the, and the a hold it had upon me, I never want to forget. It's just mind-boggling, but that's the way I lived. Came home in January 2001 um, and was off to the races. Um, off to the races. You know, I was going to meetings, but I was using, and I was, again, living those double and triple lives. Um, Finally, in uh, May of 2001, I couldn't do this anymore. I was ashamed. I was a disgrace. I was disgusting. I was horrible. I was so I might as well kill myself. And I drank a bottle of insecticide, uh, malathion, which I remembered saving after I exterminated some bugs in the ficus plant that I had, because uh, in case I might need it. And mixed with Diet Coke, it really wasn't that bad. I put everything with Diet Coke. I still did. Malathion. Uh, I remember, I remember being taken out of the ambulance at Grady, uh, where I was being admitted to, you know, have my stomach pumped and then get locked up on the 13th floor. And I said to the ambulance driver, I don't want to go in there. It smells like insecticide. And the ambulance driver said, said, no, that's you. Um, so that was my trip to Grady in 2001. Finally, in 2000, I came out, did Ridgeview outpatient, because I had just come from a year of inpatient. I certainly didn't need more inpatient. And I only did that to get my kids off my back. Uh, didn't stay clean, couldn't stay clean. Uh, ins and outs. I finally started picking up white chips, probably a quarter of as many as I need deserved. Uh, but I started picking up white chips and... Uh, Finally, in January 2003, uh, where I really date this recovery, even though my sobriety date is 2007, in January 2003, uh, I laid in my bed. It was right before my belly button birthday, and I thought, well, I have two choices. Either become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I had never done. I realized I had never done that. Actually, I didn't realize that a man who I hadn't talked to for seven years, who I finally reconnected with, told me. You have not really been a member of AA. So it was either become a member of AA or buy a gun because the malathion didn't work. So, you know, I figured I'm a doctor. I'd know how to shoot myself. Probably would have missed. But the good news is I didn't buy the gun and I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my recovery really began. I joined, uh, I started going to NAVA 7.30 literature meeting and again, I realized there was more in the literature than what I saw in James Woods and James Garner when my name was Bill W. Learn the literature. February 4th, 2003, I met the man who's sitting down there, my sponsor Pete, and my co-sponsor Julia. That's the a recovering wife of your sponsor who's on the phone when he can't be and helps. So I have two for one. Uh met Pete and Julia in February 2003 at the Ponce group, which is still my home group, and became a member. First time I ever had a home group. Uh, and yeah, did not stay clean. Got three months, got six months, got nine months, celebrated a year once, uh, 
but I don't really think it was an honest, it was not an honest year. Let me be honest tonight. That was not an honest year. I had cheated through that one because if nobody found out, then I didn't use, right? You know what? There's no way it works. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, finally, what happened? What was the magic bullet? You know, people ask me, what was the magic bullet? Everything just sort of lined up. The stars lined up. My sobriety date of September 16, 2007. Much like this, the Jewish holiday had just passed. Uh, my kids walked in on me using. Um, I had wrecked my car going to buy more dope. Um, the dope finally had stopped working, except for the first hit. And i got to own that. first one still works. Uh, five years, 11 months, and three weeks ago, the first one still works. For two seconds, but it's still one. Um, and my kids, uh, Pete's hung in with me, kept trying, uh, and uh, kept listening and kept hearing me talk and, and cry and wipe my tears. And and my kid, my daughter had just gotten pregnant with my, actually that pregnancy didn't take, but my daughter had just gotten pregnant for the first time. My kids orchestrated an intervention of sorts. Not of sorts, organized an intervention at my therapist's office and were real clear with me that they couldn't do this anymore. They couldn't do this anymore. I mean, that's what I heard. You'll always be our father, but we can't call you one day and have you loaded and one day being fine. You either get the shit together and stay clean or you'll be our father on your birthday. You'll be our father on Father's Day. I've not been that kind of father. And I have no no desire to be that kind of father. I'm a father who likes being a dad. I'm a father who likes it when my kids have a problem at work or, or any problem and they pick up the phone and say, hey, dad. I didn't have that. And one of the things I knew when I became when I got married and became a father was I was always going to be able to provide that. And my disease took that, too. Took everything. So at the end of that intervention, I had another good friend who had been my friend for 20 years. He had just been at a place in Tennessee called OnSite on a sort of a site visit. He works in the field. And, you know, the big book clearly tells me I can go elsewhere and see other people and do other things. And he said to me, Barry... You've been through long-term treatment. You've And he told my kids, too. He's like an uncle to them. You know, you've done treatment. You've run treatment. You've become a, a five-meeting-a-day guy, and you're still doing dope. What's do, let's do something different. And uh convinced my kids that that was what I needed to do, too. Didn't convince me, but convinced them. And at the end of that intervention, I said, okay, I'll go to this place outside of Nashville called Onsite just to get you all off my back. Was what I thought. I didn't say it. Maybe that will help. Uh, you know. <laughs> and driving from here to Nashville, it really was. Well, I'll do this. It's the best twenty-eight hundred dollars I ever spent to get get the kids off my back to give me yet another chance because I really need another chance. And uh, and I went and thought this was the biggest crack of shit in the whole world. Uh, the therapeutic uh, technique they use up there is called psychodrama. And experience therapy, and I'm such a smart guy, and I know so much, I thought that was the biggest bullshit in the whole world. Pardon my French. 
church. Uh, alcoholics know French very well. Um, <laughs> so I went and I checked into on-site and the first evening I was full of wit and humor and cynicism and bullshit and, but by the middle of the first group, the first morning when I was on the floor in a fetal position sobbing, I thought there must be something to this. Um, my daughter was living in Chattanooga at the time. I stopped at her house on the way to Nashville, and a week later when I stopped at her house on the way back, I was sitting on her front porch and she, uh, waiting for her to come home from work, and she pulled in the driveway and comes from her driveway walking to me, she started to cry. I said, what is the matter? She said, I don't know what's happened, but you look different. Something did happen. The planets lined up. Uh, I got open. The work at on-site is family of origin stuff. Uh, again, I'm an alcoholic first and foremost. I'm not an alcoholic because of the family I came from, and I don't blame anybody for what I began. However, those issues... And I have enough issues to be a magazine. Those issues kept my disease alive and kept me sick. And until I was able to open those wounds and let out the pus, uh, I'm truly draining. I'm sorry for the medical metaphor. Uh, but that's what I had to do. Uh, I've continued to work with therapists. I've continued to go to workshops. I have more on my calendar. Uh, I lost my medical license in the relapse. I was hopeless, getting clean, getting sober. I'd never get a job again. And, you know, I heard in these rooms people say, well, it had just come, but, you know, not for me. No. The last I read the Sunday one ads every day for probably two years. The last job I applied for was to be a rodent inspector for the city of Atlanta, and they turned me down. <laughs> but then one day, when I was nine months into this sobriety, my phone rang. And I was offered the best job I've ever had, and I've had wonderful jobs in, you know, three phases of my career, but the job I still do today, God sent it when I was ready. I mean, I know that. A friend of mine told the guy who owns this company that this guy, he can do that job for you. And I can, and I do, and I love it. And he's making money, and I'm making money, and I'm the happiest professionally I've ever been. I go to, I travel a lot for work. Uh, I miss my home group at Ponce a lot on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock, but I'm there in spirit and I'm there in thought and I'm on the road in hotels, which were great places to fool around in my disease. But I don't do that anymore. You know, I cook up my computer, I eat dinner, I go to a meeting and I go to bed. I have a home group in Toronto. Uh, where our home office is. I have regular meetings in the regular cities I travel to. Because I am not one of those once a week kind of sober guys. Uh, I need you all. I need to stay in the middle of the AA bed. I need to remember. I was at NAVA this morning at 11.30. And the discussion leader read a paragraph from page 47 um, it, from Agnostics. And I've done several big book studies, so I've read this paragraph before. But today I heard it. Alcohol itself pounded us into reasonableness. You know, my disease, where it took me, finally hurt me enough that I was able to stop and be open and get willing and listen. And you all are here for me to help me every step of the way, which is the neatest thing. It is such a gift to be a member of this program, to be a member of this fellowship, 
and to have the gifts of recovery and, and sobriety that I have. I truly am a blessed and grateful man. I live a life beyond my wildest dreams, and I'm really glad you invited me to speak tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.